isn't simple enough to just say, oh, they're hypocrites. It's interesting to know why someone does change. It can be for opportunistic reasons, but not all the time. Hello, and welcome to the Harvard Kennedy School PolicyCast. I'm your host, Matt Cadwallader, and you can subscribe to us on iTunes or elsewhere by visiting hkspolicycast.org. You can also find us every week in Boston Globe Opinion and on Twitter at PolicyCast. Today, we're joined by Harvard lecturer Jill Abramson, who previously served as executive editor of the New York Times. Professor Abramson, thanks for joining us. Oh, I'm thrilled to be here. So uh, there's no industry that revels in navel-gazing quite so much as the news media. Uh, And this year, during this campaign, uh, they certainly haven't been immune from it. I think uh, I think President Obama said that he would liken this campaign to a carnival atmosphere, except for a carnival implies fun. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm curious what to get your take on how things are going. Well, I actually think it has been fun and very interesting. Uh, I went up to New Hampshire and followed the candidates around for a couple of days, and it's you know. Sometimes the the coverage of the candidates is so divorced from the actual situations that they find themselves in when they're campaigning and meeting with the voters. And that's always what I love to watch. Mm. I love to watch that interaction. And it always becomes more difficult as the election season goes on because the layers of protectors around the candidates trying to keep the, the press at bay grow right. stronger and stronger. Do you think the press does a good job of relating those those interactions that, that people have with the candidates? Well, I want to start off by saying, and in every interview I've had recently, I felt compelled to say it, I don't view myself as a press critic. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love a lot of the political coverage I've been reading and everything from the Times to BuzzFeed to The New Yorker. Uh, you know, I, I can't get enough of it. And it's it's hard being um, one of the boys or girls on the bus now. Mm-hmm. Uh, so... You know, I don't want to sound like someone wagging their finger at people who are involved in a profession that I devoted my own life to. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think I, I've and I've written this. I actually, you know, I, I will respond to your your question, but not in as critical a mode as as you might have expected. You know, I think that that over time. Partly because of the internet, which in many ways has democratized information in all kinds of thrilling ways. The 24-7 news cycle of campaign coverage, I think, has placed a premium on what I call scooplets. Uh, They're momentary developments in usually some kind of inside baseball about the campaigns that you know other reporters are buzzing about for maybe 10 minutes and then the scooplet somehow vanishes into mm-hmm. the next one and i i worry that the the best political reporters don't have the time because of the pressures 
of feeding the beast all the time to step away and do the kind of real enterprise and investigative journalism that I had the privilege to do both at the Wall Street Journal where I covered campaigns and then at the New York Times where mm -hmm. again I did reporting but I supervised the coverage of elections. Instead of uh, winning the day it's now become winning the hour by right. hour. <laughs> I would rather you know win the week or even the month with a story that's memorable and reveals something important about who these people are and mm -hmm. you know how their beliefs on the issues came to be, if they've evolved, why. It isn't simple enough to just say, oh, they're hypocrites. It's interesting to know uh, why someone does change. It can mm -hmm. be for opportunistic reasons, but not all the time. Mm -hmm. And you know, the, the stories that I've really loved so far you know, this campaign season have, have been like the, the Washington Post has done a wonderful series about the, how the candidates make a decision and they drill very deeply into one decision. And for Donald Trump, for example, it was his very impetuous decision to do The Apprentice. And, but it's very detailed. Mm -hmm. It is, in a way, an investigative piece. And it really ended up telling me something about Trump that I didn't fully understand. So would you call the 24-hour news cycle a curse in that regard? Well, it's not a curse because the public is hungry for information and they don't want to wait. You know, they no longer want to wait, you know, in, in newspaper days, it was till the next morning to mm -hmm. find out what happened. So, you know, it's a curse and a blessing. It mm -hmm. gives the public and the voters re lots of real-time information, but it robs time away from journalists who are well-equipped to analyze and put what happened into some broader perspective and say something important about the political system broadly. Mm -hmm. Beyond the question of how the individual journalists, the people on the in the back of the bus, for instance, uh, are actually covering the campaign, there's broader questions about how organization news organizations are allocating time towards covering each candidate. Uh, I think the New York Times did uh, an analysis of the value of right. media um, coverage. Well, for Trump, they did. Well, they, uh, did they, they did it for, for all, all the candidates. candidates. Um, okay. And uh, glad. Trump, Trump uh, the, the dollar figure was about $1.9 billion. Right. Saw that. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, next, the next highest was Hillary Clinton with, only, with $750 million, less than half. Uh, and then the next, the, the highest of his competitors was uh, Ted Cruz, mm -hmm. and he had about $300 million. So it is immensely valuable. Right. Uh, and it's why, in some ways, even though this campaign and election may be the most expensive ever, it's uh, the amount of free air time has diminished in some ways that crazy chase for money that was to buy 
paid advertising mm-hmm. because Trump gets so much coverage, he doesn't actually need to spend that much money on TV spots. Well, that's the interesting thing. You know, we hear a lot about uh, campaign finance problems, you know, super PACs ever since Citizens United, the question of is there too much money in politics? When you look at this race uh, and Trump earning that much value in media coverage, it kind of makes the 124 million raised by Jeb Bush or the 59 million raised by uh, uh, Marco Rubio, mm-hmm. it pales in comparison. It, it does. But I covered um, money in politics and campaign finance for years as an investigative reporter in Washington. And what still really concerns me is the amount of so-called dark money that is in the political system where huge contributions are made tied to special interests and we have no idea who's giving that money. Mm -hmm. And Jane Mayer, who is a fantastic investigative journalist for The New Yorker, has just written a book about uh, the Koch brothers and others who run these pools of immense sums of this dark money. Mm-hmm. You know, part of the navel-gazing that I, I <laughs> mentioned before has been this question of, is the media responsible for Donald Trump's rise, which I think we can all say was very unexpected? No, I would say no. The media is not responsible for his rise. I would say I would fault aspects of the media's coverage of Donald Trump. I think, by and large, reporters for just about every news organization that I follow were slow to see the Trump phenomenon building and to treat him seriously as a candidate. I think even some of the largest news organizations did not have a full-time reporter assigned to him until near, you know, the New Hampshire primary. And so the kind of investigative spade work that should have been done earlier is a scramble now to get done. Mm -hmm. And I don't think it was smart to cover him as entertainment, which one news site decided to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I don't think it, it's really enough to examine the truth of his statements. I, I like an organization called PolitiFact very much, and Donald Trump has by far the highest rating of pants on fire lies told. Uh, But, you know, I I still feel there are so many aspects of his business record, his political thinking and how it's shaped up. I think Politico magazine, I was just reading this morning, I haven't had a chance to read it, has a really interesting story saying that Roy Cohn, the you know, he, he's dead now, but the very, very powerful Republican 
attorney who was a power behind the throne in New York for a long time and also is known most for working for Joe McCarthy uh, during the McCarthy period, that Roy Cohn apparently uh, had a lot of influence on Trump's early development as a figure, a power figure in New York. And that's something I didn't know and want to read. Mm -hmm. A good political reporter, their job is to keep politicians honest and to make sure that when politicians are claiming things, uh, you know, they're they're called out on it. Traditionally in politics, the kind of back and forth has always been politician says something, reporters say that's not true, they walk it back, the campaign moves on. Uh, Donald Trump seems to have been immune from from We're, this process. You know, we, we've be gone beyond the facts matter stage. Right. I don't think that any of this fact checking had had any effect on his core supporters mm-hmm. at all. It's it's also particularly interesting that his core brand as a successful businessman is supported by the fact that he is ostensibly a billionaire. Now, much of that valuation mm-hmm. has uh, been debated. It has been debated, uh, but at least a substantial portion of it is the fact that he has claimed that his brand itself is worth about $3 billion. Now, uh, in that context, when he's only spent ten, uh, $10 million on advertising uh, and is getting $2 billion in uh, in, in coverage ca- contributions from, from, from the from news the, media, right. <laughs> um, that's where I, I wonder... Does the news media have to think, I mean, obviously they're getting clicks and readers and, right. and viewers. I mean, Les Moonves, of, you know, the head of CBS, was honest. I think he now, you know, worries that he shouldn't have been, but he was very candid that Trump makes money mm-hmm. for you know, the the news organizations and networks that have him on a lot. He is the ratings goldmine. Right. And... They're in that business. Right. Do you think it's up to the news organizations to take a larger view? I mean, obviously, for an individual reporter, when you're putting together a story, you want to have some measure of objectivity uh, as much as as is humanly possible. Well, you Um, want balance. I mm -hmm. think balance in the coverage. And by that, I mean not six Trump stories all in a row and nothing for the other candidates or right. one story for the other candidates. And is, an, is a negative story enough to outweigh a positive story or a neutral story? It's, I, I, I've never looked at news coverage that way. Mm-hmm. I just, uh, I have a thirst for really good stories that go beyond the development of the minute and disclose something important and interesting about Mm -hmm. the candidates. And I've always viewed, you said, you know, the role of the press is to, you know, fact check and test truth. You know, I think the role of the press is, as the First Amendment spells out, it's to hold power accountable. And fact-checking is part of that, but I think it's a a much broader duty for which uh, journalists 
alone in the professions receive constitutional protection. That's how important the founders of this country thought that duty was to hold power accountable. Mm -hmm. So, you know, part of that obviously is covering the the candidates and what they say thoroughly, but it also involves investigating how they uh, got their power and how it was built and who Mm -hmm. they are accountable to. Yeah. I was, before the interview, I was speaking with uh, my co-producer, Molly Lanzarota, and uh, she brought up the fact that, um, you know, was it 20 years ago now, uh, Ross Perot obviously ran in 1992. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, co- I, and, I'm in, I covered that. I've covered these campaigns going back to 1976, the year I graduated from Harvard. Wow. wow. So. In that campaign, now Ross Perot was a bit of a character. Um, you could say that. <laughs> uh, uh, he got a fair amount of the uh, amount of the vote, but he probably didn't get a seat at the table, except for the fact that he was a billionaire. He had not just the money behind him, but that gave him a, a level a level of cachet. Do you think that there's something to the th- idea that the media will give more? coverage to people who have attained that that status? No, I don't, actually. And I think the interesting thing about the Perot campaign is that it shares some of the characteristics of the Trump campaign. Uh, Perot was riding a wave of discontent mm-hmm. uh, over issues including trade and the economy, And he was a bit of a demagogue himself, uh, as I think Trump is. And so he gave voice to a rising anger that, you know, was beginning, let's say it was on a simmer at that point, not at the boiling point it is today. But that's how he built his support. And that's why he got a lot of coverage. And it seems... It's, it's really an interesting phenomenon that people who are angry over their economic situation find billionaires who are the outlet for that anger and who they trust to do something about it. Mm-hmm. So it seems like they're, I mean, I've heard countless times people saying this campaign is so much different than others that have come before, but it seems like this does have precedence. Yeah, I mean, I think I always find part part of the reason I love writing about this campaign is I constantly am hearing echoes of the past. Uh, I even, you know, covered George Wallace when he was running in the Massachusetts primary, mm-hmm. and he did pretty well too. <laughs> Wow, uh, not not a proud proud bit of history. No, there. it was you know during the 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 busing crisis right. in Boston, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. where you know there was a great deal of racial tension. Of course, here. yeah. So that I mean we've we've, we've spoken a lot about the Republican mm-hmm. side of things, but it's also been uh, pretty tumultuous on the Democratic side of things, and getting more so. <laughs> right. Um, so uh, you know I think that. Both sides from the the Hillary Clinton camp and the Bernie Sanders camp uh, have complaints about 
the way things have been covered. I think Hillary supporters might say that, uh, you know, Bernie has not been held to task about, you know, how he should or mm-hmm. how he's going to accomplish his plans. Uh, Bernie Sanders is complaining that Hillary's uh, being portrayed as inevitable, even though, you know, they're not so far apart in delegates, et cetera. Um, what, what's your take on, on that side of the well, I actually think compared to the Republicans, the Democratic contest has been much more civil and kind of sedate in comparison. You know, it, it, when I said it was growing more spirited, you know, there are reverberations over Sanders' comment that he didn't think Hillary Clinton was qualified to be president. And mm-hmm. he was, again, talking about, you know, the money that she's gotten from Wall Street and things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, it was interpreted as a broader statement. And, you know, she is, you know, being asked today, you know, does she think Sanders is unqualified? And she has a careful answer to mm-hmm. that. Uh, so, you know, it, it's typical that before the New York primary, which is often a kind of brawling uh, contest, that it's growing a little bit uh, mm. tougher and meaner. Uh, Technically home turf for both of them. And for me. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, but, you know, do I think the coverage that, 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 you know, it's true that both of them have complained. I think Sanders supporters were protesting outside of CNN the other day. Uh, and I think Hillary Clinton over the years has felt that she's gotten an unfair amount of scrutiny uh, for various controversies. And I think, you know, she she has a point, and I think he does too. It was for the past uh, week or so as if he dropped out of the picture until he won Wisconsin. So mm-hmm. that shouldn't have happened. And uh, I think she's got a reason to feel that she's the most scrutinized political candidate possibly we've ever seen and to feel again that there's a lack of balance in that. Mm-hmm. Do you think for instance that that scrape about, you know, who's qualified or unqualified it, would you classify that as a uh, scooplet as you had, had mentioned before? No, I think that's a serious question mm-hmm. and I think it's a serious question concerning Bernie Sanders because, you know, he is saying he is going to break up the banks and, you know, he speaks of bringing revolution. And, you know, I don't think he has spelled out sufficiently enough the how he's going to do that and the practical ways of accomplishing those goals. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not his, sure his core supporters, just like I was saying, the Trump supporters don't care that much about the facts. I'm not sure Bernie's hardcore supporters care about the specifics. For them, he speaks in a kind of moral way about economic inequality and injustice. Mm-hmm. And that definitely connects uh, you know, with, with a lot of, of people. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, I, I, I don't think whether some, oh, and, and, and I was going to say with Cruz, you know, you could say Obama had only been in the Senate a short time, but, you know, Cruz has been there, you know, a minute in, and he used, 
his minute of being in the Senate to, you know, filibuster and be an obstructionist. So I'm not sure what his credentials are. He's clearly a very smart lawyer. Um, but, you know, tabula rasa on a lot of other things. So, mm-hmm. uh, so. So to be absolutely unfair, and uh, we'll close up with this, what do you predict is going to happen uh over the next few months? I'm a terrible predictor, uh, and I'm not, I'm careful to, I'm not, you know, I used to call them with a bit of sarcasm, the domes. You know, I'm not one of these talking heads on television who, you know, is on Real Clear Politics or Nate Silver, who I love, but Mm -hmm. every second. So I'm really not, I I don't like to predict and, and I won't here all right well that's that's perfectly fine i told you it was an unfair question because honestly after this campaign how could you possibly predict anything um well jill abramson is a lecturer in the harvard english department thank you so much for being with us been talking about shakespeare (laughs) (laughs) maybe next time all right i'll come back sounds good thank you uh, HKS PolicyCast is produced by Matt Cadwallader and Molly Lanzarota. Special thanks to those who help get us out there every week, including Catherine Serafin at Harvard, as well as Ellen Clegg and Laura Colarusso at the Boston Globe. And to you for listening in. See you next week. You've been listening to the Harvard Kennedy School PolicyCast. You can subscribe to PolicyCast on iTunes, Stitcher, and elsewhere by visiting hkspolicycast.org. And let us know what you think on Twitter, at PolicyCast.